0: Hi filmmakers, Jason Brewbaker with Film Making Stuff where we show you how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. I'm talking to you today from sunny Southern California and I'd like to welcome you to the show. Um, we're especially excited, uh, I should say I'm especially excited, uh, because I'll be interviewing a filmmaker today named Michael Tully. And uh, Michael is, um, and, and Michael maybe you can correct me here. You are a writer, you're a producer, um, From what I saw with your work, you're a great director and you're sometimes (laughs) actor.
1: That is correct. You know, I will say that I don't really ever take uh, producer credit because I think uh, many of the producers on my films work harder. And, of course, I think if you're even a somewhat um, attentive director, you are doing a lot of producerial chores. But um, I kind of usually just sort of let uh, at least take my name off that so it doesn't look like a Vincent Gallo film where it was written, directed, edited, composed, production <laughs> assistant by Michael Telly.
0: Um, just so the listeners know and to give them a little context, I, um, I, I reached out to you very enthusiastically about a week or so ago because I saw your work. Uh, you did this movie called Ping Pong Summer. Uh, so t- tell me a little bit like how did that movie come about?
1: Yeah, so I um I just turned forty years old this summer. Um so I was a senior in high school in nineteen ninety two in central Maryland, like very rural. There was there were cornfields on the way to school. Um, you know, the beauty of living there is that you're only an hour from or less from DC and Baltimore, so you're connected to the city. But where I lived it was pre internet. And my family wasn't really super cultured. It was kind of like what the world was feeding us at the multiplex and, you know, going to the video store. But I didn't really have the guide showing me Jean Luc Godard films when I was a high schooler. Um, So for me, I just grew up on, you know, going to the video store and then renting National Lampoon Vacation or Trading Places and these sort of Hollywood classic comedies um, that, you know, I didn't really have a definition of what was a good movie or a bad movie or an art film or a movie and all that stuff um, and then in 1992 I guess it was when I was a senior I'd always wanted to be a writer but I had this sort of epiphany that you know the beauty of cinema is that it incorporates all of it it's the visual arts photography it's music with your soundtracks it's writing um, for the scripts and all that stuff and it's also it can be a really isolating when you're writing the scripts. It's like the loneliest thing in the world, but then you can get out with 50 people and make a movie and it's the most social thing you could be doing with your life um to a point where it's exhausting and then you get back into the edit. So it's just you and an editor and then it's like lonely and nice again and comfortable so I was sort of having the epiphany as I was graduating high school of what I really wanted to do. Um, and and again, initially it was writing books and novels, but um, I sort of had this movie epiphany right around late, late high school. And at the time, it was 1992, I had the idea of a, a movie called Ping Pong Summer. And I just thought, what if I inserted, you know, my own interests when I was watching these movies in the 80s um, into one of those 80s beach movies, because you'd see One Crazy Summer, Better Off Dead. But I would watch those movies, and then I'd go out and mow the lawn and listen to the Fat Boys and Run DMC. Um, So I was just really obsessed with hip-hop before it went super mainstream. And I also loved ping-pong. I didn't really take lessons or go to camp or anything. It was always a sort of casual garage fascination with it. So so from the very beginning, for about 20 years, it was always the idea of um, inserting my own adolescent obsessions, my sincere obsessions, into a more familiar Hollywood movie template. And that's really kind of what drove it, but it just took a long, long time. I went to college in Baltimore at UMBC to get a film degree, but um, to make a movie that felt like a real legitimate artifact from the era, which was very important to me. Um You can't do that on $30,000, which is what I did with my previous film, Septian. Um, you really, you know, you need a team, you need a level of support. We wanted to clear some real songs from the era, and that just took a lot, a lot of time, and here we are, Geez, how embarrassing! Twenty-two years later, we're having a discussion about the movie. Finally.
0: <laughs> well, the, but these things take some time. And and before we hop back into the movie, so so you were writing for a bit, and then you decided you wanted to make some movies, and then your first feature was a thirty thousand dollars feature.
1: Yeah, actually, I'd made one. I made a narrative feature in two thousand six. Um, I had moved to New York after I graduated college in ninety seven. Um And, you know, that was, again, this was like late 90s, so it was pre-digital revolution. It was right on the cusp of that, but it still was really hard. It felt like, oh, the people who make movies, like reading Filmmaker Magazine, all those faces and names, they're untouchable. I would never see those people or meet those people. And and then I feel like just by nature of me moving to New York and embedding myself in the community um and, you know, being like-minded with people, all of that stuff ends up paying off, and then you organically become friendly and and, and find yourself within the community. But um, at that time, I was really insecure. I graduated school at 23, um, and you know, with the intention of making a movie, but it just felt like this impossible dream. Like there was no way I would be able to do it. Um, so I kind of dilly dallied in New York. I was writing about movies and camping at law firms and doing all this sort of soul-crushing stuff while still writing. So I was always writing scripts. But it wasn't until I turned 30 and bought um, the Panasonic DVX-100A. The first, well, it was kind of one of the first consumer 24P cameras that I actually really... Loved. I still like to this day. I think that's a really... Strong visual look, almost like weirdly 16 millimeter. So I bought that camera, and then connected to that, a friend of mine who lived in Jacksonville, Florida, named Damien Leahy, sent me a script called Cocaine Angel. And I just thought it was the right time. I was turning 30. I was sort of at the point where I was like, I you know, no one's going to just hand me a movie in my lap. I have to get off my butt and do it myself. Um, And then with that camera, I said, wait, this is this material, this camera, all these things seem right. So Damien and I, luckily I had his sort of shoulder. And we, we lifted each other up. I don't know if either of us would have the courage or the strength to do it, do it on our own. And that became Cocaine Angel, which I think is in the ballpark of a twenty twenty to $30,000 film. Um, and we world premiered at Rotterdam and got into South by Southwest and, you know, certainly didn't become not even millionaires, but, um, <laughs> you know, to have that run on a movie where you're just like, I want to do this for a living. I want to make movies. And then, and then having the world reward you just, um, being filmmaker, one of Filmmaker's 25 New Faces, that was a real honor, and I'd just been reading that magazine for years, um, and it, it enabled me to get over the hump, but I was one of those people that was just, a you know, whether it's a late bloomer or just being a little bit insecure or maybe even fiscally responsible, and then finally I turned 30 and I said, screw it, let's just uh, let's make something happen.
0: So with Ping Pong Summer, you'd always had that on the back burner as a goal, but... Uh, there were a few things that came between,
1: you know, in your
0: process. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is that thing of, like, it was kind of weirdly front burner, but it was just sort of relegated to the back front burner <laughs> or something, because it was like, this is why I went to school. This is the first movie idea. This is my baby. Um, but, again, to, to do it right, I think that's a mistake that a lot of younger filmmakers make is they have this project of theirs that they love. Whether they sell it, you know, and they give it away, which I had a little flirtation with – um, someone who had a production deal with the new line and all this stuff. And if, if that had, if that had panned out when I was in my early 20s, I would have just been giving that away. There's no way I would have been able to direct the movie. But you'd think you have to make these concessions. Um, but when it came to Ping Pong Summer, luckily, I just sort of, you know, didn't, didn't dive in. If I had made that movie on 30 grand on, shot it on a DVX, you know, and just said, I'm going to Ocean City, who's with me? And I found some friends It would have, you know, I think it really, really would have sold the whole, um, the whole thing short. And then, by nature of Cocaine Angel, I made a music documentary called Silver Jew about a band I really loved, the Silver Jews. And that was a sort of another being in the right place at the right time with the producer Matt Robison. And then um, I was writing about movies for a couple of years for a website that I still am the editor of called com. And um, I, I kind of just, you know, doing a circuit, going to see movies, seeing hundreds of movies a year, I, I hit this point where, I don't know if you're like the listeners and everyone goes to festivals and there's all these panels and people saying like, know your audience. If you don't have an audience, why are you making the movie? And and I was at a point where I was like, well, I, I only like making movies that I don't know if they're going to work that feel almost really scary um, to be like, this could really be embarrassing. This could not pan out, like, for Ping Pong Summer to put my own normal, well-adjusted, middle-class family into an 80s movie that's kind of like, this might not be a good idea. Would that even be a movie? (laughs) Um, So for me, it's exciting. It's exciting when I'm like not sure what the end result is going to be and all these panels are telling you if you don't have a thousand facebook friends why would you even think of making a movie so septian was kind of a shot in the dark with the um my co-actors and that who who co-wrote the scripts with me owner to and robert longstreet we said let's just sort of i was willing to go in debt i had a friend write a check um so again we we got that in the can for about thirty thirty five thousand dollars. We shot it on film, so that was important um but but it was it was more of a statement, like a kind of not a middle finger necessarily, but just a defiant statement to say we're doing this for the act of uh, creative expression. We don't really have investors to answer to. We want to just express ourselves. And then lo and behold, that movie gets into Sundance and IFC Films. Uh, Sundance Selects picks it up, and I was out of debt within six months of shooting the movie, which was a you know a real miracle.
0: Well let me just uh, let me just say I'm I'm sorta sitting I'm smiling, right? Because I have a lot of listeners and and the whole mantra and filmmaking stuff follows a lot of what you're talking about, with the big exception of um, I'm one of these evangelists that I'm on the panels, and I'm doing the talks, and I'm constantly talking about audience engagement. Um, so it's pretty funny to have you on the show saying something completely different to my philosophy. So, um,
1: <laughs> and, well, and it's not to say that your philosophy is wrong, but it was just in the sense of me saying... Um, you know, I think we, we could both agree, whatever your stance is. And I think it's, it's also, <laughs> there is a fiscal responsibility. Even if it's your aunt who's writing a check for $2,000, you don't want to be flippant about that. Whoa. But my lesson was almost like, you know, I don't want it to sound like I was I was more like, I don't, I don't care about the audience or I don't, I'm not thinking of them. You know, it was just more of a, I'm making a movie for... More of making a conscious cult film that's for like, that's going to sort of marinate over a few years and gather steam. Um, But yeah, you have to be fiscally responsible. All those things I think are valid. And I think it's also something about whatever kind of film you're making, it's more respectful to the investor to be true to yourself and you know like say this is the movie we're making so it's not to say I don't care what the audience thinks it's just to say I think the movie that's closer to my heart will end up paying off in the long run in some way.
0: Look uh, we all come to these conclusions in different ways like our first feature hit pretty good and then we came off and we made another feature for the love Um, but we did some things that might've broke us away from a lot of audiences in the sense that we couldn't even tell you what genre, some of the stuff that we were doing fit into. And and I think that that ultimately <laughs> hurt us uh, from a commerce yeah. side, but in the end of the day um, I'm a much better marketer and a distributor than I am a filmmaker. So that's where my philosophy comes from and I've seen your work and I'm happy to watch it. So um, I can tell you from, from my perspective watching ping pong summer, was so nostalgic. Um, the person, my buddy that was watching with me, this guy, Jared, I I stopped the movie 15 times to be like, Oh, there's where I get my milkshakes. You know, they were at dumpsters, Dairyland (laughs) and like all this crazy stuff that, um, if for nothing else, that movie would have appealed to, I'm sure everybody, um, from our, from our neck of the woods, where we grew up, mine being Pennsylvania, yours being Maryland and all the other people that spent senior week and all their, you know, summer memories in ocean city. So, um, I think, look, I think there's a place and and I think it's really gutsy to do the kinds of things that you want to do. Um, but it's not as though you were haphazardly making at least your second or third feature. I mean, each one of these things, it seems as though you leveled up and you had some early success. Um, and frankly, the stuff that you're doing is pretty well done. Um, going back to, you know, to hop back on to Ping Pong Summer, I think what makes mm-hmm. that movie interesting and, and another philosophy that we talk about at filmmaking stuff is to take the resources that you have and make the movie that you can make based on the resources. And to that point, I think you really followed that trajectory where your first film um, was a little bit rugged and then you just, you know, you kind of moved in the next phase. But interestingly enough, as production technology changed, you guys chose to shoot Ping Pong Summer on Super 16.
1: Yeah, I thought, um, you know, well, the first thing I should say to that is, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, the producers are on record. I'm not sort of um making this up. They're on record as saying that the difference between shooting digital like Alexa or Red versus Super Sixteen proves to be negligible on our movie. Um, you know, again, if we were shooting thirty five millimeter, that totally doubles. I uh, you know, adds a hundred thousand to the budget. But but creatively it was a decision I wanted to shoot Super sixteen. But um again, when you're trying to make an artifact film that feels like you know, if someone—of stum- course, Susan Sarandon, and Leah Thompson, and John Hannah—they look older than they did then. So you're never going to sort of win that completely. But in the sense of creating a texture and a feel that is like, wait, was this movie made in the '80s? I don't know <laughs> um, whether you're conscious or subconscious as a viewer. You know, so many festivals I've gone to—you can tell the people who are le- that aren't filmmakers but are film lovers—they're just like, this movie feels like an older movie. Why is that? You know, and they can't really pinpoint it. Sure, but it's a hundred percent. Uh, related to us shooting on celluloid, so we have that you know the usual conversation, which now I don't even know if it's even a conversation anymore. Is with the producers to say, okay, what are we shooting on, film or digital? And and I uh, I was on a conference call with about five or six producers, and I just said frankly, I would feel a little bit insecure. Presenting this movie, like at the BFI London Film Festival where we were last week, saying we made this artifact movie, had and then we shoot it on digital, and right away everyone said, "Okay, that's our decision. Let's move forward and let's just see what kind of deals we can make with Kodak and with our post house." And it proved to be negligible.
0: So this movie, um, the per- it's a period movie, that took place in uh, 1985 in Ocean City, Maryland. Um, and I think one of the interesting parts about Ocean City, Maryland, is the fact, and I think this was, uh, you guys said this in the behind the scenes, which I agree with, is that the whole town really hasn't changed since the 1980s. So uh, I imagine that helped you a little bit?
1: Oh, yes. I was I was just going to get to that if you didn't. Um, you know, that's another mistake, I think, filmmakers, um, whether young or old filmmakers, but... Um, you know if we tried to if i tried to shoot a period piece i have this sort of love letter to new york like my early new york era ninth moving there as a 20 something in the late 90s i probably couldn't shoot that period piece now and and you know removing even the obvious sort of iconic september 11th uh, missing towers from the equation it's just new york has changed so much so i think a lot of people I had a friend who did a bigger studio movie, and he was initially going to do it as a period piece and realized even on a, like, 15 or $20 million budget, it was impossible. Whereas, um, you know, going to Ocean City, Maryland, I was showing our crew, our production designer, costume designer, uh, more than referencing other movies. I was bringing in my family vacation photos, and we'd, we'd, like, go to those locations, and they're like the exact same, you know, in a really great way. Um, Ocean City takes pride on sort of making it feel like a timeless, traditional family town. But um, in our case of trying to make a movie on low seven-figure budget, you're, you're not going to be able to do it any other way. So that was, again, that was probably rule number two. Shooting on film and then shooting in Ocean City, I think, are the two keys to making the movie feel as 1980s authentic as possible.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the writing too. I mean, you must have been. Uh, how did you revisit every aspect of the entire Ocean City experience? And not to be overly esoteric, but things that are very popular there is walking the boardwalk, um, eating at that crazy uh, buffet where people eat way too much food. <laughs> like your your tracking camera shot on that was just it was it was like that that opening shot of a. Uh, you know what was an Empire Strikes Back or whatever, where you see the the the, the ship that goes on forever. It was and, yeah, and, and you caught uh, the the actor, uh, the character that you wrote in the movie that was um, where where the bugs couldn't bite him and and that kind of thing. like where did you get all of that?
1: <laughs> well, it took twenty years, so that was a good start. Um, but you know the the funny thing is, I should stress is like this movie had I made it ten years ago, it would have been very different. And th- there were many years that I changed the title, especially closer to film school when I was younger. And I was changing it, I was like, it can't be Ocean City. It's gotta be like broader. So I was like, what's more generic than Ocean City? Water town. And I was just coming up with all these things to sort of distance myself from the personal specifics. Um And that's kind of, probably as a storyteller, one of the ways I've changed the most as a viewer to appreciate is, like, the more specific you are, I think, weirdly, ironically, the more universal the film can be. Like, if I'm watching, I've never been to Thailand, and I'll watch Uncle Boon Me or something and and have this really strong emotional connection. So for me, I think it's actually more fun that you're visiting worlds and and places like you have the connection to Dumzers and St. Paul Revere Smorgasbord. But even people, you know, we we did just show in Poland last week and people were kind of connected and laughing and they hadn't been to Ocean City, but a lot of people will come out of the screening and say, oh, our Ocean City is this town and they'll name it. Um, So I lived with the movie long enough that I embraced the idea of making it almost embarrassingly personal. That became the sort of um, experiment with this one to say, what if I really inserted my own very embarrassing 13 year old, innocent, naive perspective of the world where irony was not, um, I didn't even know what that word meant or let alone had probably never heard it before. So if I inserted that into, and then I just sort of tried to gather as many of those, um, elements, but like one funny example is, um, or let's say, oh, The Dunk Tank Clown. That was something that, you know, I'd been writing this movie for 19 years, and it wasn't until I'd gotten to Ocean City and I was meeting with some of the locals and and trying to become friendly with them. And I went to a lunch one day at the Green Turtle with the owner, Steve Pappas, and his buddies, and, and one of them was like you gotta have the dunk tank clown in there. And I was like, Oh my God, of course we do. You know, it'd be <laughs> idiotic. So it's a sort of drunk tank clown. Cause he was the guy who was always on the margins and you're like, he's not really legally supposed to be here, but somehow he set up his shop and he gets drunk by the end of the night and is really mean to people. <laughs> so, you know, it's being open and sort of it's, especially if you're shooting in a specific community, I think it's helpful to meet people and they'll, you'll think you have it all covered. You're like, oh, I live this, I've got this. And then someone will throw something out like the dunk tank clown and automatically you're like, I am a total idiot. Why had I not thought of that over the past 19 years?
0: I, I got to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised to catch Ping Pong Summer on Showtime a few days ago when I was in Chicago. Um, that, that has to be, feel pretty good and validating as a filmmaker to get a deal with a company like Showtime.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. Anything that's happened so far, and it's harder. You know, in some ways, it's, like, easier to make movies than ever, but there are more of them. It's um, I just watched Tim Leagues at the Film Independent, um, his keynote address, sort of talking about that, the state of distribution. Um, It's really scary out there, and even to get into Sundance as a lottery win. But, you know, I always made the joke of, like, if I were a published author, like, I would feel very weirdly, I would feel more a, like, pang of pride if I went to, like, a used bookstore and saw my paperback, like, for 14 cents on the, like, cheap shelf. You know, like, the the fact that it was sort of it feels like it's in the rotation more and it's out in the world. Yes, it was in the bookstore, but then someone bought it, and then they sold it back, and now it's just sitting in the corner on a shelf. Like, I love that idea. And then the Showtime thing is similar in the sense of someone is just going to stumble into that movie at 9.30 at night, and maybe the first time they're kind of like, this is weird, I don't know what's going on. And then they're kind of lazy, and they're sitting there, and they watch it again and say, actually, this is pretty interesting, or... You know, I think a lot of people may not appreciate the sort of artistic integrity involved with, with what we pulled off for only a million or so dollars to make a movie that feels like such an artifact.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how the deal came together, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to back to your distribution here. Um, when you guys were just putting the movie together, how, how did it come about? How did you, how did you get your funding?
1: It started at um, weirdly enough. So it really, really officially started. I say I had the idea in '92, and I was trying to make it forever. But um, my sales agent, producer's rep, when Septian got into Sundance in 2011. So we shot that in July of 2010, and then we're premiering at Sundance in 2011. Um, and I was, uh, you know, putting the alert out for sales agents, but this name George Rush kept coming up. Um, and I'd heard of him, but I hadn't really met him. And he's a he's a San Francisco based entertainment lawyer slash producer rep. So a few friends of mine recommended him and I sent the film to George and you know to his credit, Septienne is it's kind of a weird oddball movie that's not made for everyone. Um and he he was like this he's like, I kind of think this is awesome. He's like, but I also think it's a really not easy sell you know he wasn't sugarcoating it he wasn't like oh we'll be great if you go with me he was sort of very matter of fact about Mm -hmm. this is going to be tricky um and then through George we we were lucky enough to get uh, an ISV pickup and the same thing of like one year later one year sooner this wouldn't have been an option but they were doing testing out the VOD day and date like the day after the festival ends five movies for one month will be available video on demand um and I was friendly with those guys at I see, and they really responded to the movie. So um, that deal happened, whereas the very next year, I just do not think the deal we made would have happened. But um, So that's, again, one of those other things about how crazy the world is we're living in, and six months later, what what you think might be a, an option for you is just not any longer. Um, but so I met George at Sundance. We hadn't officially met face-to-face, and had our little celebratory drink at the RO, like, hey, congratulations, thank you, and um, he asked me, he was like, well, just small talking, are there any other movies you, you know, what else do you have on the agenda, and I was like, well, there's this ping-pong 80s movie that I've been talking about for 15 years, and he's like, wait, your, your dream project, your little baby, is an 80s comedy um, with hip up and ping-pong, he was like, that actually sounds like a somewhat responsible <laughs> business investment um according you know, compared to some of the like hyper sincere self confessional dramas. Sure. Um so he so he kinda of right then and there I sent it to him after and he was like he he had produced a football documentary before but he never produced a narrative feature. And after that he was like I wanna do this, I want to produce this movie, I think I can raise the money. And that's really, really where it all began. I mean, you know, there's an extension, and we had other producers come on who really helped. So it wasn't just George. But, but if it weren't for George, this movie would not have happened.
0: Oh, uh, That's a great story. And then, and then I imagine once the money was in the bank, is that when the casting came about? I mean, for example, for the listeners, you had Susan Sarandon in your movie.
1: Yeah, you know what's funny? And... Um, So, okay, so that's January. We shot the movie in September, um, and it was May, or I guess it was a year and a half before, so it ended up taking, you know, a year and a half, um, which still in the grand scheme is pretty quick. But um, I had reached out. It's just that Catch-22, it's so hard. We didn't officially have money in the bank, but we had the sort of verbal, like, if you get an actor attached, then you will. So when you when you when you talk to agents and stuff, and you say things, it's like I don't know if anyone has ever officially has like, yep yeah, got the two million in the bank, but no cast yet. <laughs> but it's like, but the reality is, if Susan or someone says yes, then very quickly, you know, the producers will go out and say, okay, let's put up our shut up time. We're game on, and and those people, hopefully, you're talking to people who aren't flakes, and and they mean what they said by their verbal commitment, uh, and that's what happened with us. Um, but Susan, and I had reached out to Jay Duplass, a friend who he and his brother directed Susan and Jeff, who lives at home, the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was really vetting because we had kids in this movie, the, the main kids. I really wanted to cast local Maryland area talent. Um And I wanted to have actors who weren't going to be sort of condescending and looking down and like, I've been in this business 30 years, you know, and to their credit, Susan and Leah Thompson and John Hanna. Um, were all super, super spectacular. But um I met up with Susan, and she watched Septian, the previous film, and that was like the weirdest calling card ever. If anyone watches Septian, the idea that you make that movie, and then an Oscar-winning actor is watching it to decide if they want to work with you. <laughs> it was like, thank you, world. You're pretty hilarious. Um But Susan liked it. She got a kick out of it. And um that's really, you know, again, officially where it sort of clicked. I think it was about April or May, of the following year leading up, about six months before the shoot, that we got a sort of letter of commitment from Susan. And, you know, truthfully, it's not like the next morning every single dollar was in the bank. Um, But if you talk about having street credibility and and wanting to be able to pitch your movie to people to say we're making a real movie, um, yeah, having Susan Sarandon's name attached is... Um, you know, unspeakably important. But it, but it is this sort of fine-tuned thing of, like, the next morning, it wasn't like all the money was in the bank still. It was still a, a process and a hustle. But had we not had Susan at that early stage, it would have been, you know, way, way, way harder.
0: Were there any times during that phase that you worried everything would fall apart?
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember... I think it was, I have a a very good friend, Derek Sang, who's a producer, he produces another friend, David Gordon Green's movies. And Derek was on as a sort of um, kind of a guardian angel for us. He was busy with David's new film, but he was also helpful with budgeting and scheduling and stuff, along with uh, Brooke Bernard and Ryan Zacharias, the other producers. But he, I think my thing was ultimately, I was like, if we need to be, because we started shooting in mid-September, so I said, if we need to be spending a dollar starting on August 1st and we don't have the money to do that, this whole thing is going to fall apart. And we had a sort of, it was late July actually as far as late into that, where we were still trying to like, all the pieces are going to come together and having that question, we definitely had money in the bank, but not all of it. And we were trying to get the, get the budget in line. Um, And it was late July where I was like, if if on August 1st we need to be spending a dollar and we're not, this thing is over, um, and it, happened, it worked out, you know, sort of everyone made the commitment, and once it came to August, we had some of the crew, the core crew, like production designer, art department, come to Ocean City, and, um, you know, whenever anything was needed at that early stage, it seemed to be taken care of, and at that point, I felt like, okay, this is going to be real, It's, it's we're, we're going to be going ahead.
0: It's great when those kinds of things come together. I mean, it sounds like everything that happened to make this movie possible just snowballed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we again were, we're we we landed at about, you know, not trying to talk numbers in the sense of sale and all that, because they were all skittish and... <laughs> yeah, I know. But, um, You know, we made it for about like a million and a half, ultimately, is what the budget was. Um, but, but when we shot it, I think we were set at around a million. So it was even as we were shooting we realized, wait, to clear the music, to sort of finish, finish our film, we needed we still we're gonna need to raise more. And luckily at that point the momentum will really carry you because we're we're in Ocean City, we're shooting the movie, we have enough to shoot the movie and we're still going but we're thinking bigger. It's just you know, ultimately we made about a five million dollar movie for a million and a half. Um but yeah, when you're just like putting it out there and everyone comes together and you sort of hit the ground running, that's when I think the world finally is like, okay, you guys got this far. We're going to let it happen. And I also had 20 years of build up so I felt like karmically, I was like, oh, man, there's, you know, many years of me um, putting this out in the world and seeing old friends at high school at the mall back in Maryland going, hey, what's up with that ping pong movie? Right. And you're just like, it's coming, it's coming, I <laughs> promise. Um, so by the time that it actually came together and happened, It really was, in in reality, about a year and a half process, which is pretty damn quick. But in the context of my world, it was, we're talking two decades of anticipation.
0: It it was, uh, you had 20 years, and that became your overnight success.
1: Exactly. That's, yeah, the old overnight success, (laughs) only two decades. That that, that makes sense. (laughs) Did you uh, set up
0: a distribution deal while you were in production, or when did that come about?
1: No, we we sort of did the, um, you know, the, again, the world has changed so much that very quickly at Sundance we realized this year distributors are just very, very cautious and, you know, um, for for uh, good reason. But in the sense of the old bidding war thing, you know, we we didn't show it. I, I feel like having sort of know, been involved in the industry on both sides, people say, don't show your movie. And I also kind of don't agree with that I think it's like if you know the distributors you can show them before the festival and a lot of those deals that are announced at Sundance that seem like they just happened after the first screening that's not really the case. So, you know, they've been talking to the distributor and sort of getting their, um, eyes dotted and all that stuff. But, um, so we did go into Sundance not showing anyone. I was like, this is probably one of the few movies I make, at least so far, that is, uh, let's see what happens. You know, let's just see how it plays at the premiere and, um, and, uh, Gravitas Ventures, our distributor, just really, really responded. There, there are Philly, I guess originally from Philly, Nolan, who runs the company. Um, and they just seem to really get it and respond to it and the sincerity of it. And, um, you know, we had some other offers, but there, it was, it was very clear after, one conversation that it was like these guys are kind of right, you know. So I'm almost hoping it works out. Whereas there were others in the mix. Not it wasn't like a huge bidding war in a ton, but there were. It wasn't like that was the only offer on the table. But at that point, I think from when you partner with your sales agent, um, who was Josh Braun Submarine, I think it's really important that you um, connect and, and and understand that the person. You know, they have a job to do, and they're watching the movie differently. You know, you want the sales agents to sit there and be like, that was incredible, but of course their brain is operating differently. But um, Josh is someone, as with our world sales rep, um, Films Boutique, who, who saw the film in a sort of unfinished state before the premiere, before we'd gotten into any festival, and they still seemed very enthusiastic and excited about it. And that, to me, was... Um, That goes so much further than having someone who's just a regular agency situation where they're just like, hope it does well. And if that premiere doesn't go incredibly well, they just sort of tune out and go to their next movie that's building the buzz.
0: <laughs> yeah we'll tell but I, I think I think you reveal a really interesting I mean we've talked a lot about the different changes how things used to be and how they were challenging um, how production technology shifting and a lot of people are making movies sometimes uh, those people aren't ready to make movies but they're doing it anyway um, and how that affects distribution as a whole and I think what you're experiencing is what a lot of ex- filmmakers experience is that you um, Regardless of who distributes your movie, you still have to be involved.
1: Yeah, and and I it's funny because I am a sort of a terrible self-promoter. I'm like, give <laughs> me handing even a flyer out for my movie and asking someone to come. Then I feel guilty. I see them in the audience and I'm like, they're only here because I handed them a flyer. I have all those sort of hyper paranoid, <laughs> insecure thoughts. So um but when it comes to speaking like being in London in a press day and I was thought I was done they're like oh wait there's one more person is it okay and it's like someone wants to talk about our movie of course you know I'd love to talk about the other movies that are here as well because I've seen a lot of them but um yeah you have to be um you you, you don't you, especially now more than ever. I mean, if we were to have gone the self-distribution route, I just don't think it would have worked, you know, for this film. And um, we needed someone like Gravitas who had such a good relationship with these cable providers, with iTunes and Verizon and things like that, and then also connections to Showtime to be able to call them and say, hey, let's make a deal on this movie. Um, To to do that on your own, unless you're really well-embedded or you hire someone who's sort of specifically doing that, I think it's just... um, gonna shoot you in the foot but um but that said um there is something to be said for knowing that you have to be involved uh, every step of the way and if there's any opportunity or anyone wants to speak about it or anything then um of course you just have to have to do it i'd love to like leave the film be the expression and just sort of hide in the corner and be like the film is done. that is the statement. I'm moving on, but it's like I'm not David Lynch or Tarkovsky or whoever. Um, I can't really afford to do that.
0: Well, you, you've been so gracious with your time um, and uh, you know before we hop off here, what what kind of advice would you give to up and coming filmmakers? Um, and and you know to reiterate, you and I uh, based on our philosophies, Uh, Me being the guy that probably thinks a little bit too much like a distributor and you being um, (laughs) clearly somebody that leans more on the, hey, I'm going to make this project. I I don't care what happens, but I'm going to be true to myself. Um, Maybe we can find some advice to to give some filmmakers here that that can help them walk away from this podcast. uh, You know, at least, I, I don't know, being able to take the next step or thinking about the next step. Um, a-
1: yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's a temptation to say, like, to know the audience or to really try to get a name person in your movie. All that is just, I think, is obvious. But but for me, it really comes down to putting as much of your heart and soul into making the movie as good as possible. And then from there... Um, deal with, uh, then, then I pass the torch on to you and you can tell them all the other tricks of the trade.
0: Well, I think, I think what came out of this conversation with you, which is great to talk to somebody who has a complete opposite point of view about this stuff than I do, is uh, in terms of audience engagement, is to realize that, you know, once again, we're back to the idea that filmmaking's a collaborative art, and given these changes, um, I think there's room you, you know room for the marketing nerds to come in early.
1: Oh, completely. I mean, we got—we were. I think we were at least two weeks in our shoot when we didn't have a um, behind-the-scenes video, and it wasn't until two because we were so we were so scrambled trying to get the movie made. We we did have a set photographer at least um, who wasn't there the entire time. So all those pieces are definitely things that you know, sometimes you might have the discussion of, well, is that going to really, is that money that's being put on the screen? But I, I agree with you, I think. And again, you can find people who are um, excited about the project and willing to help you out. Um, but yeah, teaming up and then just having, you know, having publicists or whoever that you like and that you've worked with before when you're getting the next movie going, bringing those people into the conversation sooner, I think is really, really helpful. So whatever the Specific role is if it's a more traditional publicist or if it's a kind of new new media um crowd you know crowd outreach person the more of a familiarity you have with people already moving forward i think that will help as well because once you get into the nitty-gritty of actual pre-production all of those things become really superfluous and frivolous and i do agree with you i'm not saying that that's not um important. But uh yeah, so moving forward, I want to have all these little, we forgot about having behind the scenes video for our making of, like, we need to get on that and have that be part of the, and then whether it's like having a website to update people or having a blog or a journal, all that stuff, I think just really depends on the film. I think, you know, there are some that are um, part of the surprise is the film itself. And some people, you want to make them feel really engaged, especially for nonfiction and make them feel involved. So it's all also situational and film-to-film. But I agree with you. I'm not trying to be here to say that uh, we are complete polar opposites, um, because I think it's all hugely important, and none of us really know what's going to happen six weeks from now. So I think we're all, we need to stick together and try to figure out what in the hell is going on in the world right now.
0: Well, listen, this this has been a great conversation, and I'm sure our listeners are going to you know, really enjoy um, everything that you shared. And, And once again, the movie is called Ping Pong Summer. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael.
1: All right. Thank you very, very much. It was a fun chat.